The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Many Canadians are super stressed out about the huge overreach by Prime Minister Trudeau in his reaction to Freedom Convoy 2022. Jay, are things equally stressful in the United States these days? I think we're a little bit less stressful, but it's going to get to equal you because we're beginning a truck convoy of our own that's headed for Washington, D.C. So I think things will uh, get to equal you. But watching the insanity that is going on and the fact that Prime Minister Trudeau, I think, is vying uh, to be in the pantheon of tyrannical dictators that in our lifetime we've seen in Cuba and Venezuela, China and Russia, that we're going to learn from it. And I'm hopeful Canada's terrible negative experiment will help us not to do as badly. Yeah, it's interesting. Many of the actual donors have been exposed, you know, to the convoy because that was hacked. The Give, Send, Go website was hacked. And now, for example, they have a Google Maps where it shows every single donation that came from Ontario, who the person was, what their email address was, their postal code. So it sort of doesn't give their exact house, but within a very short distance. And it also includes their comments. So you can actually see, for example, that Joe Blow from Toronto on this street gave $50. Here's his email address. So sadly, people are being harassed. Even a single mom who gave $50 has had her bank account frozen because she donated to the convoy. So, Jay, is the United States, I think, presumably, you're more free than that. You can make donations without it being revealed, right? Yeah, our Constitution and our laws uh, in the United States make it harder uh, for Biden to be quite the tyrant that Mr. Trudeau has come. So I'm fairly optimistic. And of course, I think there's going to be a seat change when we have a, a national poll we call our midterm election. So I, yeah. I think all the negatives that are going on now in the end will be life lessons that we will take heed of. Yeah, for sure. Now, I understand you have a philosophy of life that keeps you optimistic, pushing forward, even when most of society around you seems to be collapsing. So what's your philosophy? What are the points that you use each day to keep you in an optimistic mood? I'm going to involve David Okerlund, our guest that you'll announce momentarily in uh, discussing these things, because uh, he has a take on it. and uh, He is a better philosopher 
than I. And so I, I really want to go over them with him. But it is true. I actually have a 10-point daily philosophy that never failed me to uh, make me happier than the average bear and more optimistic. And that's kind of what we're now uh, going to discuss. I think uh, the world has kind of been in a funk for the last couple of years. Obviously, the, the virus has caused all kinds of problems with masks and quarantines so that mental health has uh, clearly uh, gone downhill for maybe the average person or at least a large percentage of the population. And we're going to discuss that with my uh, friend, David Okerland, right after you introduce him, Tom. Yeah, sure. So David Okerland is our guest today. David is a philosopher, poet, writer, and internationally renowned motivational speaker, which of course is a wonderful combination for today's show. David has given over 2,500 speeches to over a million people without one disappointed client. Twice he finished in the final three in the World Championship of Public Speaking, a contest of over 20,000 individuals from 30 countries. David taught speech and debate at Oxford University in England and was inducted into the International Hall of Fame for Speakers in 1984. David has written three books with a fourth book, The Seven Traits of Dynamic Leaders in Leadership Roles, due to be published this year. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right, David, we know that the China virus masking and lockdowns has taken a toll on mental health of a significant portion of the U.S. population. Could you briefly explain how you believe, if you do believe, that an individual's personality plays a huge role in how difficult times like we have been in can be managed positively? I agree completely. I don't know anybody who has not been affected by the pandemic and all the other things that are going on. But when I look back over my years of, of 35 years of speaking and making with, meeting with people, I have found that I, there are certain traits that just kind of jump out at me. And the people that do the best are, number one, the people that have a greater sense of humor. The word humor comes from the Greek term humor, which means to flow. And mm. I think those people that nurture that sense of humor and whether they uh, books that they read or whatever, I'm in a group of four or five, five people that every week we send a, send a funny picture or a funny joke to one another just to get the endorphins going. And when you know, when you let the endorphins going, you, you create a greater sense of, of stability and, and well-being. And I think that's so important. There are so many places you can go to and buy books of humor. You can go on the internet. And if you want to have humor jokes about farmers, you can go there. But every moment you spend there makes a difference. I think the second thing is that there are people that I know that are doing well are proactive instead of reactive. I once wrote a little snippet of a poem that said, no force alive can drain the sea, nor steal from you your liberty to live by faith, to dream and pray that life might grant you yet one more day so that you might strive and ultimately be the you that you were meant to be. To be proactive and to deal with stress before it overwhelms us is important. 
Well, that, that brings me right to my second question. I think if people do not have some central focus in their lives for which they are passionate about, uh, coping is more difficult. If you agree, why is that so? I totally agree with that, Jay, because of this reason, it's like taking a trip without a destination. Passion gives us purpose, and without purpose, we tend to drift. What I mean by drift, we get caught up in the negativity on what's on the news and the negativity that we see in, in what's happening to our nation that is so unfortunate. We lose our intensity and our, uh, our energy to achieve our goals, and we become victims of the circumstances instead of victors. I love that response. I never thought of it that way, that passion gives you direction. There's something, there's a target, whatever your passion uh, might be. Now, how would you define passion? Leaving out uh, that which most understand is, you know, the passionate love of a woman for man or man for woman. Leaving that out, how do you define passion? How would a person say to themselves, I'm passionate about X or Y or not? I wouldn't mind addressing the other one, but uh, I'll stick with the, the <laughs> yeah. you know, I've looked as a speaker, a motivational speaker, and as a consultant, I've looked at passion for a number of years. And th there was a professor from Penn University, Dr. Segelman, who studied it for 15 years. And it came down to two things. He said that legitimately, what is passion? He said, number one, it's faith, believing you have both the will and the way to accomplish your dream. And secondly, it was optimism, a strong and enduring expectation that everything will work out okay. And he did an incredible test with MetLife. MetLife picked out 30 of their best potential salesmen. He picked out uh, the 300. He picked out 30 who had the highest sense of passion. And over three years, they outsold uh, met life's creme de la creme by better than 60%. I mean, it was just incredible. And I think passion is kind of like the pot belly that keeps the cabin warm. It fuels <laughs> our desire to accomplish our goals and objectives. It's kind of the gasoline that keeps the car running. And, uh, in, and like Charles Franklin Kettering once said, nothing ever arose to touch the sky unless one person thought it could, one person thought it should, and one person willed it must. And that's where passion comes in and makes all the difference. Yeah, for sure. I just wanted to go back to one quick point, and that was the importance of humor. You know, last night, for example, before bed, I was reading about the Ukraine and I was reading about, you know, these terrible circumstances in Ottawa. And then I noticed, oh, Space Force. They just came up with the second season and I watched the first episode of Space Force and all, you know, it's a humor, it's a comedy. And I felt so much better and I went to bed and slept a lot better. So yeah, I think humor is important for our health for sure. Well, let me add something to that. My, my wife is a nurse and when she would come home uh, and she was in a trauma unit and I had, it was a book that was called uh, growing up isn't hard to do as long as you start out as a kid. And it was kind of an art uh, link letter thing where he interviewed kids uh, that were eight and 10, 12 years of age. And I would have my wife spend 10 minutes 
reading some of these comments. And 10 minutes later, the endorphins released and she's laughing. And <laughs> you know, it was like one question to a 12 year old. What should you say about your parents and marriage? And the little kid said, nothing. Look at what they picked. That little bit of humor breaks the stress zone and, 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 and lets us relax a little bit. And that's why it's, it's so incredibly important. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, uh, do you know a smile is contagious? Yes. Uh, it's, uh, I find that just that little simple idea that if I'm feeling uh, remotely down or less upbeat than normal, I just start smiling and then I start laughing. And I read a little bit about it. If you walk down the street or you meet somebody, a friend of yours, and you're smiling, uh, soon that smile will form on their face. I want to ask you, if one is not passionate about anything in their lives, other than, let's say, their, their family, how would an individual search for filling that void and literally coming up with some passion? How do you teach passion? That's a critical question, Jay, and, and I think it's so important, and there are a number of things that we can do. And, and number one, I, I think we need to identify what depletes passion. You know, who are the people? You know, it's like a getting into a quicksand pit with some people, and, and we get drawn into them because we've been long-term friends or whatever, but they've drifted into the negative or the COVID or, or the policies, policies and things like that. And, and we got drawn into that and we need to divorce ourselves from them. Secondly, I think we need to find moments, moments of wonder where, where we think about things that might be and we expose ourselves to emotions that we don't normally think about uh, and, and, and what are impossible. It's, Alice in Wonderland had a wonderful thing in there that I remember when Alice told the queen that there's no use in trying. One can't believe impossible things. And the queen replied, well, I dare to say you haven't had much practice then. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believe as many as six impossible things before breakfast. That's the <laughs> yeah. kind of attitude. Yeah. And yeah. we need to strengthen our uh, ability to choose to not get drawn into negativity. We need to create space and time, finding time that we absolutely set aside on a daily basis to nurture our passions and to let our minds go for a walk in the woods or listen to a Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And then I'll talk, uh, talk to you, I'm sure, later about the power of rediscovering the child within. Sigmund mm -hmm. Freud once said, what a distressing contest there is between the radiant intelligence and passion of the child and the feeble mentality of the average adult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, talking about child, it, it sort of makes me worry that today's younger people, even, you know, elementary school kids, they're all being told about the end of the world from climate change, you know, and surely this is not good for their health. I mean, should we be weighing 10 year olds down with things like climate catastrophe? Yeah, that negativism is just so disruptive. And, you know, and the child is so important. I wrote a poem one time that went like this. When I was but a child, the world was a wonderful place, so full of heaven's treasures of goodness, love, and grace. I could dream like Walter Mitty. I was a cowboy. I was crowned a king. I became yeah. a crazy, lazy hobo and could do most anything. 
Then sadly came the day when I deserted the child and became the man. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Well, I want to insert something right here. David's never heard me say this before, uh, but David Okerlund is my favorite poet, uh, hands <laughs> down. And ah. I can't, uh, he has a whole book of poetry, but in the recent book I read of his Gathering Pebbles, he's got a couple dozen poems that are amazing. Uh, they are so simple, so direct. And they, they are all teaching moments in the most delightful way. So if you enjoy poetry, I can't recommend the book too much. And if you don't enjoy poetry, I recommend it more because after you read some of his poems, you will be a, a lover of really great poetry. Where do you yeah. want me to send the check? No, no, no. You, you know me better than that. I, you know, it's funny. I'm incapable. I, I, I'm like George Washington. I am literally incapable of telling a lie or incapable of not being sincere. And that's gotten me into a lot of trouble my whole life. <laughs> I know. And that's what makes me love you most. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned passion. Uh, Tom and I share a, a major passion that has helped us stay very healthy at an advanced uh, age. We are passionate about physical fitness. My day always begins with uh, exercise, make sure that it, my work can't eliminate it at the end of the day. Tom's somewhat the opposite. He will not end a day without working out. So we have a passion for uh, exercise. And I don't think it's difficult to look around your life and find out what you love to do. It might not be what your family loves you to do or your friends love you to do. But find something. It could be big. It can be small. And all we've talked about, uh, passion, is one of the great attributes anybody can have. Yep, absolutely. I believe you need to every day create space and time. Find that time that is religiously adhered to as much as your exercise, Jay, where, where you spend time embracing those passions, where you take time to go to a, for a walk in the woods or to listen to a Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata to, to yeah. take you into a state of grace. Yeah, for sure. We actually will include under the podcast when it goes to podcast on Monday, some examples of David's poetry. And in particular, we have an article that's just out on America Out Loud in which we include one of his poems. So people should look it up. Well, thank you. Well, I want to move the discussion a little bit to the side something I learned uh, long ago, and it has to do with getting in a, in a groove in your, in your life that ultimately uh, becomes a coffin with the ends kicked out. Red Auerbach, the famous uh, coach of the Boston Celtics professional basketball team, once said, the goal of every athlete is to get into a groove. However, if you stay in the groove too long, it can be a rut. In a person's life, that groove can become a rut often described as a coffin with the ends kicked out. In your book, Gathering Pebbles, you write about redundancy in a person's life as being unhealthy for mental health. Could you explain why redundancy can be a negative in your life? I'm going to be absolutely honest with you. I think it's the most important lesson we can ever learn. 
uh, redundancy kills. Redundancy, you know, it, it gets, gets us, we're like a mummy that's atrophied and doing the same thing in the same way day after day after day. I've done marriage enrichment and counter weekends over the years, and I've very, I met very few couples that uh, got a divorce because they stopped loving each other. They got a divorce because they got bored. And it, it's sort of like Jay or Tom, if I fed you lobster 14 days in a row, I'll tell you about the ninth day, you'd be sick of lobster. We just don't think out of the box. And there's that mummy within us and that atrophy. And sacred cows sometimes make the best burgers. I use the reference that there's four levels of learning. Number one level is when we are unconsciously incompetent. That's when we don't know what to do and we don't even know it. And Jay, as a great speaker, there was a time when you didn't know how to be a great speaker and you didn't even know it. And then you reached the second level where you became consciously incompetent, where you didn't know how to be a speaker, but you knew that you didn't know how. So then you took some lessons and did some practicing. You got to level three where you became consciously competent. That's when you knew how to be a great speaker and you knew that. But Lord help you, Lord help me, if you ever get to level four where we become unconsciously competent, where we're so good at what we're doing, we don't even think about it anymore. I was visiting with a company one time and they announced a, a new core value. And I was really amazed because they got up and said, I want... We want you people to know this is a new core value. If you can't teach an old dog new tricks, maybe it's time to take the dog to the vet. You see, <laughs> we've gone from, yeah. change, from an evolution to a revolution to an avalanche and change has just begun. And we have to be proactive. We have to be able to, to adapt and we get locked in to what we think we want to do or what we think we've done for 15 years, we're in trouble. We've got to think like a beginner. We've got to think out of the box. Hell, sometimes we've got to throw the box away. And that's so vital to creativity and positive thinking. Let me give you one tiny, tiny example of getting out of redundancy. And this occurred to me with a next door neighbor probably 40 years ago. He commuted to work. We, we live outside of Columbus, and he commuted 30 miles every morning to his job. And uh, he believed in everything you just said. So he would try to find as many different ways to get <laughs> to his job and not repeating the same path. And he did one other, the littlest thing imaginable. He would brush his teeth one day with his right hand and another day with his left hand. I mean, he really tried to make everything in his life variable. And I think it showed in his uh, amazingly upbeat personality. When I talk to different groups, I, I tell them, try this. You remember the song, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover by Simon and Garfunkel? I said, why it, don't you come up with 50 different ways to love your lover? Come up with different ideas. And, and over the last two years, every two years, I come up with 50 different ways to tell Twyla how much she's important to me. And I mean, I have had billboards put up on the highway celebrating my love. I have done crazy things like giving her hot oil foot rubs at five o'clock in the morning with a fresh cup of coffee on the bedside table. And, and all that excitement creates more excitement and we strive to be even better than what we were. Hmm, yeah, exactly. About 30 years ago, I attended a presentation from Zig Ziglar and, and met him afterwards. 
I get the impression that you were inspired by Zig to some of these ideas. Zig Ziglar is my guru. Yeah, I guess you've met him personally then. I have met him. I've been on stage with him and I, I love him deeply because he was so not ordinary, but he was so down to earth that people couldn't help but learn from him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful fellow. Texan, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, sure. it's, it, it's, it's funny. There's certain people that I think of regularly because of, you know, accidental encounters. Uh, Zig was one of them. I just met him in the lobby of a hotel and he was carrying a, uh, a suitcase on a very interesting metal uh, with wheels, just a, a luggage cart that folded up to nothing. And uh, at the time, I didn't know him. I just went up to him and said, where did you get that cart? And he gave me his card and wrote the, where he got it. And I, and I bought it. So when I'm traveling, I'm carrying that very simple luggage cart. And think of him. I've told David whether this is a good or a bad thing. But I'm forced to think of David Okerlund every single day when I brush my teeth. Because he, <laughs> gave, a, he gave a lecture one day that no matter when you think the tube of toothpaste is empty. You can find a little more toothpaste in it. Nobody ever gets to the end. And I think of that little story and he did it. He had in front of the class, he had a, a tube of toothpaste, totally flat. There's no way there could be any more toothpaste in it, but he got it out. So uh, I think of that and laugh and laugh every morning when I brush my teeth. I told that story to a local high school football team in the, in the middle of the conference and said, just remember, there's always something left in the tube. And when you're out there and when it comes down to victory or defeat, squeeze that last bit out. And they won the state championship. <laughs> wow. That's wow. Great. Well, that's a great place to stop for our commercial break. So we'll be right back after the break. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Are you tired of being tired? Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cells REM Sleep Supplement. These are pill-free supplements in a gel pack. They're so easy to take before you go to bed. I'm so tired during the day now, working so hard, but restless at the same time. I'm going to take a healthy cell before sleep tonight so I can restore my REM sleep and wake up refreshed. Now go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any product. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. 
spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Okay, we're back with David Overland. And David, what do you think of Toastmasters as a motivational speaker? You must know a fair bit about them. You know, I've been a professional speaker and that's my college degree, but I have never found another organization that does better than in training people to be effective communicators than Toastmasters. You can enter at any level and you can progress at your own speed. Uh, they are the most wonderful, warm group of people that I have ever met. And over a period of time, you can achieve status that you didn't even dream about because the way they nurture you through different types of speech, whether they're entertaining speeches or instructive speeches or, or whatever, they have the finest. I'm very critical of a lot of other organizations, but I will never be critical of Toastmasters because they are the ultimate and communication training. That brings me to a related question. Toastmasters, when you become good at it, you gain self-confidence. And I think confidence in oneself plays a, a very significant role in mental health. What do you think of that, David? You know, I, I think confidence can be the pivotal factor in any effort to achieve. I once wrote a little poem that went this way. He was fighting to make a decision deep within himself. He was struggling for the reassurance as he teetered on the shelf. Oh, I think I could do it inside a small voice cried. I could really make a difference if I could cast the doubts aside. But at that very moment, the dream snatchers suddenly chimed in, planting their little seeds of indecisions in hopes of stifling him. Don't be foolish. You'll be sorry. Only a fool would chase that star. Use common sense. Now let's be practical. No one has ever reached that far. And in the growing frames of darkness, the angel sighed and turned away. Too sad to watch the birth of greatness needlessly aborted again today. Uh, confidence uh, is, is insurance. Confidence is, is your support. And, and that uh, keeping that confidence level high is, is just critical. Well, somewhat related to that, many people live for some dream of the future and some carry baggage from the past. How can both be a problem? And why do you think it best to live primarily for today, shutting out the past and the future. How can that improve one's mental health? Jay, I got to tell you, I, I look at it this way. We have no control of the past. It's gone. It's over with. And we don't know for certain what tomorrow brings. But we, what we can make is the most of today. And that's why I think the Focus on today is so important. It's claiming the day and claiming to make the most out of the day. But if you get trapped in the past and you get trapped in the doubt of, of what might be tomorrow, you're in deep, deep trouble and you're vulnerable to defeat. I have a trick that I have been using for 50 years that allows me 
to accomplish what you just said, living for tomorrow. I've done this every night of my life for 50 years. And that's looking to tomorrow for something that is going to be a present. I make every night Christmas Eve and every day Christmas because I find a present. Now, my bar is very low. The more exciting thing in tomorrow might be finally mopping the cellar floor that my wife's been trying to get me to do <laughs> for a month. Yeah. But I find I find something in every day that excites me. And uh, I never fail because I have a bar low. Obviously, it could be dinner with friends. It could be going to a movie or a play. It could be a sporting event, but it can be absolutely anything. And that has me automatically living for the, today. I, I don't spend my Christmas Eve worrying about what went on that day. I spend it planning why tomorrow is going to be exciting. And it, it virtually never fails for me. I agree profoundly. I, I love people who get up in the morning and say, good morning, Lord, instead of those who get up and say, good Lord, morning. And when I, Jay, I'm kind of crazy <laughs> like you. I, when I get up in the morning, I walk in the mirror in the bedroom. And I, I got to tell you, I've done this for 15 years. I look in the mirror and I said, hey, life, if you got a garbage truck, bring it to me because I'm ready to make compost. And, <laughs> and, yeah. and they say that you actually sleep a lot better if you have something you look forward to first thing in the morning. Absolutely. We all know uh, folks that have, let's say, difficult personalities, uh, apparently uncaring of their impact on others. If a person were to make an effort to be kind in all human contact, how do they benefit by that? I'll put it simply this way. It creates the peace of mind that passes all understanding. I have done this in so many ways, but let me give you an example. Uh, about a year ago, I was in a Perkins restaurant early in the morning, and this waitress came over, and she just brought her own sunshine. She hadn't gone off shift yet, but she was just so, so happy and, and, and so friendly, and she took care of my order and, and everything else and visited. And when I got done, she came over, and I said, I want to speak to the manager. And she, <laughs> and she immediately backed up. She thought, I'm going to dump on her. And she went over to the manager, and she pointed me out to him. She didn't come over with him because she thought I was going to dump garbage on her. And the manager came over, and I said, you know, I travel a lot, and the quality of food that I eat is important to me, but the quality of service is so much more important. And that young lady over there is absolutely incredible. And if you have any employee, employee awards, I want to put one in for her because she is absolutely wonderful. She, You don't have any idea how good she makes you look. And mister, she makes you look good. And yeah. I'll tell you, I could he could have given her a 10 cent hour, hour wage increase and he wouldn't have made the difference that I made. And I went out of there and let me tell you, the peace of mind that I achieved by doing that simple act was incredible. Mm, yeah, exactly. And we can compliment virtually anybody. I mean, if you look out the window first thing in the morning and you see the garbage collector, you, you can marvel at the efficiency of their motion, the fact that they put everything back in the way it came. You know, I mean, there's lots of things to compliment that we just take for granted. Yeah. Every year, twice a year, Dom, I, I 
tape a $20 bill to my garbage can. And oh. I sent an editorial into the paper right before Christmas saying, these people work hard. They put up with your stench and, and they're out there in all kinds of weather and we forget to thank them. And so do the same to them. And I've had people put out apple pies. I've had them put out bags of sweetbreads and things like that. And it's just changed the whole thought of, of, of our garbage collection, our sanitary engineers. And it yeah. just makes an incredible difference. I have a related story that happened to me. Uh, my wife answered an ad for a display of a very fancy vacuum. In fact, it was a Kirby vacuum. And uh, I said, uh, darling, you've made this appointment. And that's a really, really expensive vacuum. I think it's way over our budget. And this uh, young man shows up. He was a college student. He had a long ponytail. And he was holding a Kirby vacuum. And my first instinct would say, I'm sorry, my wife made a mistake. But we felt, well, we made the appointment. He came in. He did the demonstration. He cleaned a few carpets for us. And I ended up buying the vacuum, which I certainly never intended to. But the story is that the next day, I called his boss, just like you called over the manager, to thank him for, sell for sending this young man to our house. He did a fabulous job and we bought the vacuum cleaner. There was silence at the other end of that phone for nearly a minute. Because <laughs> I don't think anyone had ever called to thank them for sending a Kirby vacuum cleaner salesman to their house. I will never let one day, and I promise you this, I will never let one day without finding a goodwill target. And mm -hmm. like yesterday I came back into Minneapolis and it was cold and I went to pull out of the parking lot and I, I had it pre, pre arranged and stuff like that. But then I handed the guy in the cold booth at two o'clock in the morning, a $5 bill. And I just said, I want to thank you for doing something I would never want to do. And you, you cannot imagine the smile on his face when he said, nobody's ever done that before. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, one thing I do each year is we have a lady who's retired and she does our tax for us. And it's really quite wonderful. She only charges like $120. She always finds some additional way that we actually make more money than we pay her. And each year I, she'll say, oh, okay, that's $120. I say, hmm, well, how about 150? She says, <laughs> no, I said 120. I said, yeah, is 150 okay? Is that enough? She says, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, Good. I mean, it reminds me of what Wayne Dyer said. I mean, he said a similar thing to that guy who made his patio. You know, yeah. he said, oh, how much is the patio? A thousand bucks. Well, geez, how's twelve hundred? I said a thousand. Yeah, I know. How's twelve hundred? <laughs> he said he had, the best patio, he had the best patio that anybody could ever have. Tom, <laughs> uh, you're my kind of man. <laughs> you, you know, I had that exact same thing happen to me. I wanted a mural painted on the upstairs uh, level of our house. And I had seen this picture of a cowboy chasing a steer on a gorgeous evening as the sun was setting. And I found a, a lady who uh, had done some murals. I showed her where and how big it was. And it was almost the same numbers. Uh, she said she thought he could do it for $1,200. And I said to her, you know, I think you're going to be living at our house for a week and realizing that $1,200 is 
is way below. Could I pay you $2,000? And of course, she went crazy. And she realized at the end of the week that she had underpriced it and thanked me for recognizing that uh, she was underpriced. But I had a selfish motive. I wanted a happy camper in my house, not someone that was grumpy because they realized she was doing too much work for too little money. So these stories really reverberate. Yeah, they, and they make a difference. Those little things that we do to people who don't expect them, it just changes their view on life and enriches ours. One lesson that I'm sure every one of our listeners uh, has more or less learned, and that is what it's like when you deal with negative people. Probably nobody listening right now is, has not known somebody that when you uh, encounter them, they're just putting out one negative vibe, one negative story, sentence after another, and you walk away drained of energy. They really suck the energy out of you. It really pays not to be negative, but as when I'm in offices and I stand around a water cooler, more often than not, the conversation are complaints. Sometimes I think complaining is a national pastime. How can we talk people out of being negative? I agree with you. Getting caught up in that is like a quicksand pit. Once you step in, it's going to suck you down. So I, my simple solution to that, Jay, is, is to cut the conversation off as ASAP, as soon as possible. And I would, if you were the negative person, I would simply, simply say to you, you know, Jay, it may sound silly to some, but I've gone on a mental diet of trying to avoid digesting negative thoughts. So let's talk about something else. So you're not insulting them. You're just saying that you're, you're on a different train of thought and you don't want to drop into that quicksand. Excellent. One of my favorite quotes in your book uh, by a, a man I am not familiar with, Brian Aldis, maybe he'll tell me who he is, said something similar to what you spoke of in the last segment of our show. When childhood dies, its corpses are called adults and they enter society, one of the politer names for hell. That is why we dread children even if we love them, because they show us the state of our decay. How can most people recapture the joys of, of childhood? Uh, my wife uh, looks at me like I'm an eight-year-old because I see life through the eyes of an eight-year-old. I don't know how I got so lucky. I had to live through people saying, uh, you know, I was immature and I did dumb things. I just let it roll off my back. How can people recapture uh, the joy of childhood by looking through their eyes? Well, let me let me first say that I, what I, the eyes of children uh, are immersed in curiosity, a sense of wonder, playfulness, imagination, flexibility, joyfulness, trust, optimism, compassion, and explorativeness. And I, I think we need to go back and. I, what I hate to see, what I've hate to see in America is that we've, in deserting the child, we've gone from play to competition. 
And last year, there were over 10,000 parents that were brought into hospital emergency wards to receive treatment from wounds they received while playing, while fighting with other parents at Little League contests and seminars, events like that. We've gone from, you know, we don't want the, the fruits of, we want the fruits of victory and not the fruits of the spirit. Uh, and, and we just, we've, we've got so competitive. We create little gladiators today. And, it, and, and that's absolutely uh, insane because that child within, you know, there's a certain book that says, unless you become like one of these, that wasn't talking about faith. That was talking about living. And so I tell people, do things like a, uh, rediscover the child. I'll never forget. I, <laughs> I gave my wife uh, and I, we had $20 and we went into a Toys R Us store to buy something that we wouldn't give to our kids or grandkids, but that we would have for each other. And we picked out these squirt gun machine guns that were battery operated. And, uh-huh. and you could, sh- and we went home and we got naked in the hot tub that night and squirted each other with these guns. And we had more love and more fun in that hot tub than, than Lawrence Welk ever had in his bubble machine. And that, <laughs> <laughs> it's that sort of a thing that, you know, playing go to the dump or, or whatever and going out and play croquet, little moments of, of rediscovering the child within and, and, and just simply having fun. I mean, Sigmund Freud once said, what a distressing contrast there is between the radiant intelligence and, and passion of a child and the feeble mentality of the average adult. The child mm-hmm. was given to us as armament for life. And when we desert the child and become the man, we are, are exposing ourselves to endangerment. Mm. So it sounds like you would recommend probably people don't pay too much attention to mainstream media news because it is so, so negative. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It just, that's, yeah, it's insane. In your book, Gathering Pebbles, which again, I strongly recommend to our listeners, you write both directly and indirectly about religion and faith in one's life. I am completely without religion and perhaps many of our listeners are as well. You sort of sum this topic up with a statement like, we should install someone or something into a position of authority in our lives. I say this not as a joke, but I've done this, and it turns out to be my wife, who is infinitely smarter than I am. (laughs) Uh, Speak to this topic as you mean it psychologically. Okay. I, I, I hate to hear you another poem, but this is not mine. But I believe the, the greatest authority we can install within ourselves is a desire to be as noble to our fellow man as possible. And Lee Hunt in 1834 wrote a poem of Abu, Abu Ben Adam. And let me just read it to you. Abu Ben Adam, may his tribe increase, awoke one night from a deep dream of peace and saw within the moonlight in his room, making it rich in a lily and bloom, an angel writing in a book of gold. Exceeding peace had made Ben Adam bold and to the presence in the room, he said, what writest thou? The virgin raised its head and with a look of sweet accord answered the names of those who love the Lord. And is mine one, said Abu? Nay, not so, replied the angel. Abu spoke low, but cheerfully still and said, I pray thee then write me as one who loves his fellow men. And the angels wrote and vanished. The next night it came again and with a great awakening light and showed the names whom love of God had blessed. And lo, 
Ben Adam's name led all the rest. My view is simply this, Jay. If there is a heaven and no individuals like, like Gandhi, like indigenous tribal chiefs like Setting Bull and, uh, and other noble individuals outside the realm of traditional Christian doctrines are not allowed in heaven, then you will probably send me straight to hell. Uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more because that's, you know, when I was challenged uh, through earlier years about religion, I actually used those very words, probably stealing it from the poem, Abu Ben Adam, uh, which I have forgotten, but stayed in my mind. I have faith in my fellow man and uh, it's, it's served me very well. If you are noble and you serve your man, your fellow man, you cannot reach, in my mind, any higher state of grace than that. And you can throw out all the baptism, all the other doctrine. If there is a heaven, you're going to be blessed for who you are. Mm, yeah. And Jay, you were saying part of your philosophy is to be kind to people, even people you feel angry with. And that also is a big boost to your happiness. Yeah, I, I do have a 10 point philosophy for happiness every day. You might link to it. It's a one pager. I'll send it to you, Tom, and you can link it to this discussion because literally uh, I, I arm wrestle people for a title of being the happiest person on earth. I've had the, sa the same amount of tragedies that everybody goes through and yet uh, overcome them. You know, the day of a tragedy or recent days are difficult to overcome. But in time, and part of my philosophy is that uh, every day I want to make uh, a positive impact in every single human encounter I have, or at least a neutral one, uh, and try not to bring other people down. And it isn't hard at all. And David really has uh, referred to the same philosophy before in our discussion. It's Amen. just not. Yeah, just not that hard. So, amen. I want to turn the conversation to something we all think about. One of the most overused words in the English language is luck. We tend to blame bad luck for something unfortunate that happens, or say somebody who is fortunate is just lucky. And you tell an awesome story, and you're as good a raconteur storyteller that I've ever heard. And it has to do, we're both baseball fans, it has to do with how the Minnesota Twins beat the Atlanta Braves in the World Series on what was told as a nothing but a lucky play. Could you tell that story, David? Oh, my God. I, I'll, I'll never forget the moment I was blown out of the water. I'm a, I'm a big baseball fan, but... When the Twins won that, that pennant, one writer stated in the eighth inning of the seventh and deciding game, the Minnesota Twins were blessed with some dumb luck. You know, and it was incredible where the game was scoreless and Atlanta had designated hitter Lonnie Smith on first base. And on a hit and run, Atlanta's Terry Pendleton hit a ball into the gap on left field. And as Lonnie Smith... <laughs> was about to round second base. He suddenly stopped in his tracks because he saw second baseman Chuck Knobloch and it looked like he had the ball in his glove and he was going to throw him out. And 
and and he hesitated at that particular moment for about two seconds. And in that moment, they kept him from scoring and going around. And every, I mean, Jay, every headline I saw, because I was traveling at the time, the Chicago papers and whatever, and they all had dumb luck, won the series for the Twins. But what I did catch was an interview in ESPN in the locker room, and and Knobloch said it wasn't a fluke. It, rather, it was a design play that he had practiced through high school. And he said it was a carefully planned response to a potential variable that might arise in our quest for glory, CPR. Mm -hmm. I was just blown away. And to this day, I think it's the most powerful and meaningful quote I have ever heard an athlete say. say. And it was, it was a perfect reflection of Seneca's comment that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And, mm -hmm. and since then, that's I've always looked at luck that way. Yeah, yeah, it would be easy to say Michael Jordan was very lucky, but he had incredible preparation. If you look at the weight training he did in the offseason, et cetera, I mean, he came into those games super, super prepared. So, I mean, yeah, he had, he had luck, but he sure earned it. Yeah, yeah, it was planned. Give, give an example of something where someone would say, oh, I had bad luck, and in reality, they were responsible for whatever happened. I, I thought about that. And probably the best example I can give was about three years ago. We have a barn attached to our house and Jay, you've been there. And uh, it's a training center for speakers. And way up in the ceiling, there's some light fixtures up there. And I had some bulbs that go that went out. And so I had this old wooden ladder, this big old wooden ladder. And I took it up there and it was sort of rickety. And so I took Gorilla Tape and, and taped the weak and cracked joints thinking that would work. And I climbed up on top of that ladder and 14 feet above the floor and all of a sudden it imploded. And I landed on the floor, tore what my doctor said was the worst rotator cup he had ever seen and was in a sling for about three months. And it was just a stupid thing, but it was it was a result of me not thinking through what I needed to do and doing a shortcut and then coming up with what somebody probably would have called poor luck. And I paid for it. I paid for it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I wanted to go back to the business of the news. How do you recommend that people handle the news when it's, you know, wall to wall negativity? I mean, should they ration the amount they actually watch? Maybe just look at the headlines to see if there's anything important because you can get into these topics and go right down a rabbit hole and it's all negative and it can just overwhelm you. I think. Yeah. I, I just believe that you really need to control your diet of that because you, you see some ridiculous things on a number of networks and they keep repeating them like a drum. If you get caught up in that, uh, you get swept down the river and your attitude goes with it great experience I had was last year with a, a friend of ours. We went on, on a houseboat up in Canada for a whole week. And of course, we had no television. And it was the most peaceful time I've ever spent. And I've come to the point where there, there are a few shows that I like, like the CBS Sunday morning show, because it focuses on artists and things like that. And it stays out of that quicksand of, of negativity. But 
boy, uh, it, 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 is, it is creating an incredible toll on the psyche of America because of the way news is presented. And I, somebody needs to be held accountable for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it gives you the impression the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, it's just not true. If you go around the world and you look for all the extreme weather events, you would think that that was going, you know, right through the roof. But it just isn't. I mean, there's just filters going on. And I would suggest people should leave their cell phones at home when they go on a walk in the woods. I mean, just get away from it. Amen. Amen. Yeah. yeah. Well, I when I'm lecturing, I frequently ask my audience, you're, I say, oh, you're all very, very busy people. How would you like it if I could give you an extra half hour in your day, a brand new 30 minutes that you could use in any way you wish? And of course, they, they murmur, of course, and raise their hands. And I tell them, just stop watching TV news. If Amen. you're watching TV news for 30 minutes, you're wasting your time. It's worse than that. It's all the negativity Tom mentioned. Uh, you, can, you can do without it. I find many people come to me and say they stopped watching and it's been great. I live literally in a no news house. We get a newspaper that we like a lot. I have, a, because I'm writing all the time, I have a network of friends that, you know, keep me informed. And my friends are people that I can trust to send me things that are accurate. And I, I can't recall ever being stumped or for not knowing on what, not knowing what was going on in the world. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's not only that though; it's the propensity of the networks to to create all these shows like the FBI, FBI International, and 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 they focus on on negatives there as well. And and we don't have the Red Skeleton shows anymore. We don't have the no. Jack Benny's and 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 we've we have some situational humor, but uh, you know, I I love to go back and see Net, uh, Mash come back and and have some of those programs because so many of the other options we have are so limited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, on that note, we'll have to wrap up because we're out of time, unfortunately. So David Okerland, he was our guest today, a philosopher, poet, writer, and internationally renowned motivational speaker. He gave us some really great ideas to help make our lives more positive and more enjoyable and contributing to the world around us. So thanks, David, for being on our show today. Well, thanks for letting me be part of it. You two guys are great. Keep it up (laughs) working. Thank you. So this is Tom Harris and Dr. Jay Lair signing out from the other side of the story.